This is One Ogden. I'm John Miles. Angela Choberka has been a member of the Ogden City Council for six years. In this episode, she explains how the council works, how her career relates to her work on the council, and we discuss some of the big projects the council is working on right now, including Wonderblock and the Union Station. How long ago did you move here? Um, we moved here, I think, it's 17 or 18 years ago. Um, Matt got a job at Weber State in the art department, and that's what brought us out here. And then, and so he got a job in the art department, and you were a student at the time, is that right? Um, well, when we first moved out here, yeah, I didn't know exactly what I was going to do. I was a teacher before our daughter was born um, in Brooklyn. And then when we came out here, I was kind of trying to figure out what exactly I was going to do, and I got sucked into being a Montessori teacher because oh. she went to a Montessori preschool and did that for about eight years um, oh. for a while. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. And then taught adjunct at Weber State, too, in the English department. And so you have a job outside of the council, right? I do. And what's that? Um, well, I work for Intermountain Healthcare at Select Health as a member equity consultant. Um, a big part of how I got into healthcare was kind of from that prior teacher experience and feeling like students and families didn't have all the supports that they needed so that all kids have the same opportunities. So I started, um, you know, I went back to school at Weber and finished my master's degree. I started at NYU. And then I, since then, when I was teaching, I actually got into a PhD program at the U um, looking at education policy and leadership because I was just so frustrated that kids and families you know, they were having challenges that were kind of beyond their control, right, seeing the system and how it wasn't really fitting their needs. I was really interested when I first started that program thinking about how we segregate schools just by the way we build communities and how we fund schools. And then, you know, really got into this uh, space where I was thinking more about how you provide a community um, that supports kids and families so that everybody can have the same opportunities. If we look at the data, I'm a big data person, Um, You know, outcomes for kiddos in our communities are very, there's a lot of disparity based on where you live. A lot of times that has to do with your economic status as well, but race plays into that. Um, So that's where the segregation comes into place. So that's what I was looking at. And then um, I started working at United Way of Northern Utah on a Promised Neighborhood Initiative. And that is a program that's based on the Harlem's Children's Zone, where um, They decided, okay, what would we need to ensure all kids and families have the same opportunities? And they got a bunch of funding, like $50 million, sort of building those supports out, which include things like early education, you know, food pantries, other kinds of supports for families so that, you know, kids can be at school when parents are working, um, you know, in after-school programs so that they can really have the same opportunities and exposure to different kinds of classes and things like that. Anyway, so I was working on that, and then I got sucked into Intermountain because they were focused on a project called the Alliance for Determinants of Health, which um, was looking at what kinds of things outside of the healthcare system help people to stay well. So there are things like housing, food security, access to educational opportunities, um, transportation, utilities, all those kinds of things that I was working on from like the education lens. Now we're looking at it from the healthcare lens and thinking, what can a healthcare system do to help support some of those things in the community so we can keep people out of our hospitals? Which sounds kind of counterintuitive, but because we're a not-for-profit health system, 
we really want to have more risk or more um, accountability for how well people are um, because that's a different payment model than a fee-for-service. Yeah. So it's called value-based care. So you get a group of people and a certain amount of money and you keep them well and then you actually get the benefit if they are doing better because they're not using the services. Huh. And so, and then, and then that's the data you're studying is sort of how, how that you know, has these larger outcomes. Right, or like how can a healthcare system get involved and how do we work across all these different stakeholder groups? Because obviously that's where definitely my day job and my council work kind of come into play and are related because you think about like where do we put affordable housing, where are grocery stores available or affordable food options for people? Um, how are we thinking about transportation lines and how people access things? Um, going to the hospital or going to school, you know, things like that. So, huh. um, yeah, definitely looking at those kinds of things. And then you sort of get into the space where you realize there's these historic systemic oppressions of different communities based on where they live, you know, based on maybe historic redlining where certain people can live and can't, so they can't build wealth over mm -hmm. time in their families. Um, you know, also just things that... I would say not each, an individual person is responsible for putting in place, but how our systems breed these kind of systems of oppression on different populations because the system doesn't see them as human or yeah. as equal to other people. Yeah. Well, and that's interesting. I'm just curious because, you know, there are people who will sort of deny that claim that, that there are these kind of systemic issues. But you're probably really p familiar with data points that make that case. Are there are there certain data points you use to make that case? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's so stark that it's unbelievable that we haven't addressed these things yet. Or people are trying. Some people are trying, but just so complex that you do have to work across many different systems to resolve these issues. Yeah. So the data, data point that we were looking at when we started that project was that based on where you live in a community, you could live up to 10 years less than somebody else living across Harrison Boulevard, for example. Really? And that that's true in Ogden. It's also true in Park City. It's true in Salt Lake City. It's true in St. George. You know, in many of our communities, these are facts. That if you look at the data um, that show that a person has a likelihood to live less based on where they were born, where they live, work, and play, and that's the social determinants of health. Wow. Interesting. And there's other places in the country that are even worse. You know, certainly 10 years is not acceptable. It's mm -hmm. a, like a moral imperative that we address it. But in some places, um, Baltimore, 25 to 30 years difference, right? Or Detroit, you know, different places yeah. like that. Yeah, but you are looking at it on a local level. That's really interesting. Yeah. And, so, and it aligns with um, education outcomes, too. Uh -huh. So, you know, all these different things. And so sometimes, you know, um, like when I was thinking about education and thinking about systems that uphold these kinds of oppressive situations, um, a lot of times, you know, standardized tests, you know, I can understand the rationale for wanting to know how kids are doing, you know, what are they understanding, etc. Sure. But honestly, if you look at the research, it really just shows where people have the more, more resources in their communities where they live, mm -hmm. based on these determinants, can really impact those test scores. Yeah, and I imagine... Well, so um, how long have you been on the council? Um, I'll be starting my sixth year this year. Okay. So it's my second term. And how does the council work with like with your area of expertise? Like, do you end up taking on assignments related to that, or or hmm. does that not really play into it? 
you know, because I imagine Sometimes. there's not really somebody to take charge and assign assignments like that. So when I first started, I served. We have some committees that were assigned to that are in the community. So at the beginning of my tenure, I served on the local homeless coordinating committee, um, which works closely with the county and then all the service providers for people that are living unsheltered. And so that was really a space where I understood those community partners. I was working at United Way, and so I understood the not-for-profit perspective and how they're working together or not working together to help support community. But then at one point, I stepped away from that because there was another council member that had a lot of questions about like what are we doing about homelessness what what's going on mm. it's like hey maybe you want to serve on this committee because I already know all this stuff happening and I know who to talk to if I need if I have questions etc right um so I passed that off now I'm on the board of health you know so now I've switched and now I'm more of that policy group over the Weber Morgan health department and so what is the the time commitment like do you have like office hours when people are coming in and talking to you or do you just have to you know, make that mesh with your other job? Like, how does all that work? I think it depends on how many committee assignments you have. Right now, I have quite a few um, because I'm also on that Community Renewable Energy Program board, and that is a ton of meetings every week. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it depends on what you're assigned to. It also, I think, depends on what you see as your role is uh, as a council member. Uh-huh. Um, I see... It's important to me to be present where communities are versus yeah. having them come to me all the time. So I try to be out at community events. I have to say I'm probably doing less of that now than I did the first four years because mm-hmm. you sort of are like, well, I, I'm not the only one that can show up, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, sure. and I'm, I want to be there, but I just cannot possibly do all of it. And there are seven of us. So right. I kind of hope um, that other people will pick up some of that. And I would guess you've gotten to know a lot of the people who tend to show up at those things yeah. and they know how to get in touch with you already. And Yeah. And they know I'm available. Yeah. So I guess I feel like I've built relationships where people know that they can access me. My cell phone number is available yeah. <laughs> widely. You know, yeah. people text me, call me, email all the time. That's just been part of how I have approached it is to be available because that's honestly a huge part of what I do every day is explain to people how the system works sure and then how you can get things done because people often will come to us when they need something done or they're mad about something Mm -hmm. right they're not usually coming because they're like hey this is great (laughs) I mean that's why they want to reach out to us and so a lot of times I mean honestly I always feel bad because sometimes I'm just redirecting them to somebody else and I don't mean to be like hey I'm just passing you off to somebody else but if it's something under the county, well, you have to go talk to the commission or you have to talk to this person at that office or, oh, yeah. or you know, um, they want me to tell the mayor what to do. I can't really do that. You know, that's not part of our job in this form of government. Uh-huh. Um, in other cities, you know, it gets confusing because throughout the state there's different structures of city government. And so in other cities, the council does get to tell the city manager or the mayor what to do. Right. And so it gets a little bit confusing. Yeah. And do talk about that just a little bit, like the power sharing between the council and the mayor's office. How does that work? You're sort of like the legislative branch. Yeah, that's what we are. We are the legislative branch. And so that's where where this comes into play is that we don't get to boss the mayor around. We can create an ordinance Mm -hmm. and then the administrative side is supposed to enact that through, Mm -hmm. you know, different kinds of processes or policies that they set up to enact it. Mm -hmm. Um. But to be honest, there's many reasons why that could just stall out um, if you don't have their support, right? And Mm. so that's one of the challenges is we could 
hold back budgetary funds or we could do some kinds of things to help to make those things happen, but we really have no power over them mm-hmm. to force things to happen, right? right? Like a lot of people would like us to do. Right. Why aren't you telling them to do this or that? And you're like, well, that's an administrative role to maybe figure out the bar- garbage pickup or figure out you know, how the police are running things or whatever. Mm-hmm. That's not really our role is to tell them exactly how to do that. I think we can give recommendations and advice or we can create an ordinance that lays out how something has to be done. But it's limited. Yeah. It's hard. <laughs> <laughs> and are there... Um Let's see. Are there seven members of the council? Mm-hmm. And so do you have, you know, some things that need 50% and some things that needs two thirds and that mm. kind of stuff? Is there it's a great question. Um, so in general, we need five votes to pass something that also couldn't be vetoed by the mayor because mm. that's two thirds of mm-hmm. the vote. So like if we only have five people, two people are absent, then you actually need everybody to vote for something. Mm to make it happen. I mean, you can have just a majority with four to three, but then um, that leaves it open. So you don't have an office. And so if somebody calls you up and says they want to meet you to talk about an issue, is it just you're meeting for coffee or something? Yeah, I do that a lot. Um, Or I'll meet at the library or, you know, whatever. Yeah, just meet out in the community somewhere. I do really care what people think, and I want their guidance. Although I may disagree in the end, but I'll explain to them why. I've disagreed. Yeah. And I forgot to ask, will you tell me where your district is? Um, it's District 1. So um, Ogden is div- divided up into four different districts. And District 1 is the southwest <laughs> side. But um, So like we're at the main library right now. Mm-hmm. So my district starts maybe one block over east, goes all the way to the west, mm. um, goes down to 36th Street in the south, and then up to 12th Street in the north. Oh. I mean, there's a little bit of jagged line on that other side, but uh-huh. basically that's my district. Uh, so your district covers most of the area where like new development and new projects are, are going in right now. Yeah, it's downtown. You know, the bus rapid transit's run, well, it's running through... Almost everybody's district except for, I guess, two. But um, most of the big projects Mm -hmm. are in my district, except for a lot of people sometimes think Rite Aid, that area, is in my district. But it's actually Ken Ritchie's or Ben Adolski's. I can't remember with the new redistricting over there. Mm. There's some weird little blocks on that side. So I always try to remind people. (laughs) Not that, you know, I'm not trying to say anything disparaging about those council members. But people assume that it's all my area because they see me a lot. Mm -hmm. I'm always talking about these things um mm-hmm. so I'm always kind of reminding them like hey no actually this is your representative although I'm happy to talk with you about the issue because I do feel like I represent the whole city but I do have a unique perspective being the district one representative right yeah. so you also just got elected chair again yes congratulations by the way well, thank you uh, and it's your second time doing it right mm-hmm. so then are you basically involved in everything you kind of have to at least be told about everything in in each of the committees or you know how much more of a time commitment is that you know it depends on what's happening um the first time i ran um in march of that year in 2020 we went to all virtual meetings because of the pandemic so 
that was a very different situation, I would have to say, than the norm. Um, although I'm super happy about it in one way, is that it was something that I had been talking about and a lot of other council members have been talking about for a while, is to make our meetings more accessible. Mm-hmm. Um, because the work session, for example, we have that every week, and it's a two-hour-long meeting, yeah. but it starts at 4 p.m. on Tuesday and goes until 6, and then sometimes goes after the regular meeting. And so many constituents didn't really know that meeting existed, number one and that's where we usually get previews of everything that's coming for the agenda and have the really in-depth conversations about them or give recommendations to change it or say why we're against it so then the administration will go back and change things and then bring it to us and so now that meeting is available on video Mm -hmm. there was not really access I mean we do have minutes eventually that come out but it's so far removed from the actual thing that I think sometimes when people would come to our public meeting, you know, which is the regular weekly meeting, and then we would just all unanimously um, support an issue over and over again, be like, well, they don't even talk about it. They don't even question it. Or, you know, they're all just agreeing. They're rubber stamping everything. Yeah. Like, well, if you knew for how many months we've been talking about this in the work session, you probably wouldn't have that same perspective. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that's a huge gain that happened from the (laughs) pandemic, which, you know, is awful to say, but now we're set up. So those meetings are available on Facebook. People can watch those and kind of go back and look at them and, you know, see how we've had those dialogues, et Mm -hmm. cetera. And then also the public meetings are now hybrid so that both things can happen at once too. Before, people could view the meeting on Channel 17, but this way people can go back and view the regular meeting on social media or on YouTube, and then also um, they can participate through Zoom in the public comments. Mm. So that's been a huge gain, I feel like, from that pandemic. Right, right. I definitely benefit from that, the the YouTube. Yeah. But I didn't see the work sessions on YouTube. Uh, They may not be on YouTube, but they are on on the social media. So we can ask the team a little bit more about how that works. But and I do like those recaps you guys have been doing lately. Yeah, that's that's our communications team. So wonderful. I think that's led by Brandon Garside, who's been a wonderful addition in doing that. Yeah, the recap this week said that you guys talked about all these additions to the public safety building, the Mm Franklin, the police station, but then I didn't see that in the meeting. That was during the work session. Oh, oh, they were recapping the work session and then... Yeah. Right, mm-hmm. right. Yeah, the right. work session. Okay. And that's... So usually it's like the week before something's on the public agenda, we're having the discussion and a preview in the work mm-hmm. session. Although there's some things that get talked about numerous times in the work session because we have additional questions or we've asked them to change something and then they bring it back. So it doesn't get put on our final agenda until we're ready to take action. But the public can participate in the work session? They can listen. Oh, they can just they yeah, can't, they can't come. Even if you come in person, you can just listen. We're yeah. in the workroom instead. Well, mm-hmm. sometimes we do it in the chamber if it's a really big topic because we know there'll be a lot of people. But um, in general, yeah, we're um, just in the conference room right next to the chamber. And, wh- like, where do you express... I don't know, like, like you have a lot of discussions you've been having about a particular topic you have a little bit of time in the in the council meeting where you can kind of give your comments but like where is it that you're really trying to express to people the thought that you've put into a decision you know Mm. it depends like so sometimes there's a lot of things that happen behind the scenes that people aren't privy to and also that 
some of us on the council are trying more and more to have those discussions in the work session or have them in a place where people could hear the discussion mm-hmm. um, because of this issue of not understanding how much we do influence some mm-hmm. of the things that get put in front of us because people only see that one little slice like yeah. when it comes before us and we just all approve it or right. or we all deny it or you know whatever it might be very seldom do we have different votes on the council and so that's one thing that also kind of bothers me sometimes or has bothered me in the past when I was just a constituent like can't anybody disagree or you know whatever yeah. um but it the reason that happens is because we've had all that dialogue um either in that public meeting the work session or through other conversations that we've had. We can't um, have a conversation about an issue with four of us in the same place at the same time without it being a public meeting. Mm. Um, Yeah, so I do try to explain, like especially, well, we always give space for if someone votes against something and everybody else is for or whatever, Mm. for them to explain their vote if they'd like. Mm. Um, So that's when I try to explain to people. And then sometimes we do it if we're all in agreement too, we'll explain, well, the reason I support this is because, you know, whatever. Try to make those statements. So I want to talk about building and kind of renovating in the city because there's a lot going on now. And I think I want to get into it starting with schools because that sort of was a big thing. And then we've kind of resolved some of it by now. So my understanding was that there's sort of there's money available for building that's not necessarily available for renovating and stuff. But the city did seem to have like a preference for building new buildings instead of renovating, at least to a degree. So is there anything you can say about like those deliberations and how that all I have a lot of thoughts about that. The first thing is that, just to be clear, that the city of Ogden has nothing to do with the Ogden School District's decisions Mm. about buildings. Um, So Ogden School District is a separate entity. Right. It is the same or very close to the same boundaries as Ogden City, but they have their own board. So we have, you know, elected officials on that board and then the superintendent. Um, and their administration that makes decisions about what they do. We certainly are partners mm-hmm. um, in different things like, you know, talking about how to use school properties, etc. cetera. Um, but it's a separate entity, so that's important. So the, yeah. the council doesn't have any pull <laughs> or weight on whatever they decide in those spaces. Right. As a person that has my background and um, has worked closely with the school district, Um, When I first ran, for example, uh, was when the first bond uh, decision was coming up for building the new school buildings that failed, Uh right? But when I went and knocked doors for my campaign, I actually asked all the constituents, you know, that I was able to get a hold of about their perspective. It was quite varied. Um, But in my district, people were very supportive of having new schools. And I think one of the reasons is because I spent a good amount of time in the old T.O. Smith, for example, been in James Madison, been in um, Gramercy, which is now closed. Um, Those schools have wonderful people working in them and wonderful families and students that attend them. But if you went to those schools, I mean, there's like buckets in the hallway, you know, during rainy times. Um, They're very, they were very dreary, Um, you know, and as a person that comes out of a Montessori philosophy for how children should be treated in environments, Mm -hmm. Um, it should be beautiful, it should be inviting, inspiring, etc. And not that the people that built those buildings probably didn't feel that way, because they were probably really nice when they were first built, but they were very institutional, right, Mm -hmm. because they were built in the 50s, so they're you know, there was no light in the hallways. Right. Like the hallways were all interior right. <laughs> and it was all dark and carpeted and 
Anyway, so in my perspective, spending much time in those spaces and with the families and students and the staff, I was like, I'm definitely into historic preservation because uh-huh. I live in a historic home, etc. Those buildings were not something that needed to be <laughs> cherished in any way like that, right? Uh-huh. So I was very much in support of the bond issue. I know that, you know, the it was very controversial for the Polk Historic Building and that school. Mm-hmm. But to me, um, I kind of can see it from a stepped back kind of broader perspective mm-hmm. and could really see how some of these issues that I talked about before with segregation and where people go to school and why they choose to live where they do to go to those schools and have access, how some of those things were playing out Mm -hmm. in that people were saying, I don't want my kid to go to school across Harrison Boulevard. I mean, that's what I could see being said. Sure. Also, of course, we want to save this historic structure, but why is it important to you, you know, where it's located, the actual building, et cetera, you know? Yeah. So I had a little bit of a different perspective yeah. on that, just thinking about access for kiddos and where kids live and how they were getting to schools and what was it like, what was their experience like when they went into those buildings? And then also to feel like with the brand new buildings, um, I mean, we have Newbridge that was one of the first models for that. Um, you have those kiddos that were in kind of the older D elementary where they also didn't have much light or space, you know, just because of that design time. Uh-huh. It would make me feel like my community cared about me and my um, education and my experience, knowing that they were able to invest in a building that was so beautiful for me to attend every day. Hmm. Yeah. Right? I mean, yeah. it's a huge difference if you go into some of those spaces. And like I said, I don't think. One individual is responsible for creating those kind of situations. It's the whole systems that we've created. Mm-hmm. Um, but where schools have investment and don't is really important to me based on those things. Hmm. So it seems like there was a pretty similar thing going on with Marshall White. And there was a debate mm-hmm. for a long time about should we renovate this or should we rebuild? And I feel like maybe I lost touch. I know that about a year or so ago, the debate was kind of happening and it seems like we landed on we're going to rebuild at the site of Marshall White. Is that right? Correct. Yeah. And that was very controversial for a very similar reason, I think, too. Um, I'm trying to remember how many years ago. It was probably about six years ago or so when I first joined the council. I was actually, before I was elected, I went with um, YMCA of Northern Utah and the Ogden School District and the council and mayor at the time up to Idaho to tour several of the YMCA facilities that they had, Mm -hmm. looking at, like, what would be the possibilities for our recreation center. Mm -hmm. Um, And that time, there was no discussion about exactly where it would be or anything like that, but we thought that YMCA of Northern Utah might be a good partner because YMCAs build rec centers all over the country. And if you've lived in a different place, like I have, I used to go to YMCAs in Brooklyn and in uh, Bloomington, Indiana. And they're like, they are the community centers. um, And they have a really great funding model um, where they have a kind of scaled uh, pay scale. So it's based on your income. So nobody knows who's paying the full price there versus maybe Mm. the lower end, right? And that's how all their programming is actually that way, even after-school programs, et cetera. So, you know, it really brings community together in a whole different way because that stuff isn't apparent, right? It's universal access, and nobody knows who's paying what, et cetera. Um, And those facilities are really great. So they had several models up in Idaho we toured. One was attached to a school building, kind of getting back to your point, where we actually were thinking about before these school bond issues came up, 
could it be that when the school district builds a new school, that we could have it attached to a recreation center? Because that's a way to kind of benefit the whole community. Because in our situation, much to your point before, Ogden School District funds are all of ours, people that live in Ogden. We all pay into those funds and support them. Mm -hmm. We also support the city fund, right? So it's all of our same money. Um, and so like if we bonded for the rec center along with the school district, it would benefit everybody, right? right. And right. you'd be using the same land, perhaps. It's, you know, so it'd be a nice collaboration. Yeah. Um, so <clears throat> that, that was kind of my first introduction to the topic. And that was before the pool was even closed because mm. my kid was actually swimming the day before <laughs> they found the crack. Uh, yeah, so there was all these conversations. So the YMCA did, uh, they have like 180 steps to how they go about opening a rec center. And um, part of that is a market analysis. And so they conducted this analysis. And part of that was reaching out to people to say, how much would you pay if this facility was available? And it also had a component of where it was located. Mm -hmm. So they didn't say specifically where, but I think the current um, location was on there a location downtown somewhere, and then a location up by Ogden High. And so in that study, the YMCA came back saying, well, we have the most possibility of being successful at the Harrison Boulevard location because we'd have the most people committed to paying the higher price right. so that more people would be able to afford the lower scale. Right? So it kind of works out that way, right? And that cost was $59 a month for a family, uh -huh. <laughs> which is... Very affordable. Uh -huh. I mean, very, very affordable. That's the high cost? That was the cost, yeah. Oh, okay. Um, but then it would the model would change as it moved more to the downtown area. And then the least desirable to the uh -huh. whole survey was the area where it is right now. And so I think that was part of that discussion of why maybe it should be moved somewhere else. Where, what was the, how did that study start? It was a, like a market analysis that the Y does just generally when they're trying to figure out if mm. it could be feasible. Right, because I remember that <laughs> caused a lot of uh, fervor because everyone said, you know, accessibility is the mm -hmm. priority. Right. But, but then it seems like that was taken into account because obviously it's not moving. Well, yeah, that definitely changed, and we're not working with YMCA of Northern Utah anymore either. Mm. Um, but at that time, I think that's how it sort of started coming up, that maybe a different location would be ideal because there was some feedback in the community, and this was from different council members too, that where it's currently located doesn't feel like it's for the whole community, that some people don't feel comfortable going there. That's kind of what the way I read between mm. the lines. Mm. Um, so I was definitely an advocate for keeping it where it is because mm -hmm. I feel like things have changed in Ogden, number one. Number two, I don't think it was founded that it wouldn't be safe or something to go down there. Well, and can you help me understand how those decisions are ultimately made and what authority the city council has and just where all of that, you know, shakes out? Yes, yeah, so we serve as the board of the redevelopment agency and then also the board over the municipal building authority. These are like different entities that are... There's like funding available for a project that's RDA, funding for one, and, and they handle like different areas of town and stuff. Is that right? Right. Well, the redevelopment agency could be anywhere um, mm. in the town, but there's specific areas that community economic development department will bring to us and say, we want to create a redevelopment area here. They're basically areas where legally the city is able to assess what the current value is of all the property there. And then we make agreements usually with the county and the school district. So this is another place where we partner to say for the next 20 years, we're going to only get paid out that current value. 
and we're going to do some redevelopment in the area. And all the additional funding that would have come from taxes, based on that, we're going to put back into that area. Right. So they stu- still do get the base value of what it was when it was created. So I think that's a misnomer that some people have is like, we don't get any tax money from there at all. Mm-hmm. Um, the premise for doing this is... That, that's tax increment financing? Right. Is that right? Yeah. And the premise for doing this is that Ogden City is all built out almost, you know, besides the rail yard. And so in cities like that, a lot of times you need to um, do redevelopment, which includes not only having new different kinds of developers involved in projects, but also infrastructure that needs to be done. So number one, you have to tear down whatever's there. So that takes a certain amount of cost. And then sometimes in some of these areas, they might make new streets or they might... Put in, you know, if it's an apartment building, they might have to put in additional sewer, utility kind of stuff. And that's something that the redevelopment area takes on that cost versus having a developer come in and take on all the cost. Mm -hmm. Because in other places, developers, and I'm just telling you what the reasoning is for why we do this. I'm not saying I agree with all of it. Uh Um, But in other places, like Farmington, for example, you just have an empty field, right? And so developers just come in and they can just build stuff there. And then Farmington probably does help with some of the infrastructure, streets and all that. But in our case, we have structures that were already there. For example, at the Rite Aid development, this giant old grocery store Mm -hmm. was sitting there. And no developer wants to come in to our city yet and take on the cost of tearing that down building their own infrastructure under it, et cetera. Right. So that is kind of the reason why the state allows these kinds of things. Yeah. And it's, um, it is regulated through the state how we can go about doing it. So um, that's what's happening in many of these areas. And I think we have 13 active ones right now. And we have had more in the past. And mm. we've had some in the past that fail. They actually don't increase the value. The idea is that if we do this kind of redevelopment over this period, the, the increase in value will be much faster and it will be more directed by the city what is actually getting developed there. Right, because I think a lot of people don't realize you don't get a pick who comes into the land unless you kind of have this kind of... Yeah, if it's zoned a certain way, somebody buys the property, they can just build it. Uh-huh. You know, I mean, they get have to have certain things that they meet, you know, permitting and all that kind of stuff, but pretty much it doesn't have to go in front of anybody if they're not trying to change the zoning or do something that would have to go through either our planning commission, right. zoning commission, or then ultimately the city council. And we do not see the majority of projects that happen in the city. We don't see at uh-huh. the city council level because we have already approved through our general plans and the zoning plans how all the land in the city can be used. And so if someone wants to utilize the land when it fits in that category, they can just do it. And so that's one thing I think sometimes people get... I get mixed messages from people. I have to say, since I've been on the council, there's some people that don't want the city to do any development. And there's other people that don't want developers to do anything. (laughs) So you're like, well, we can't do either of those things because in order to survive as a city, we need to have additional growth. I mean, that is definitely a fact that we need our tax valuation to increase so that we can afford to pay for our water pipes. We have 100 miles of water pipes in this old city that have to be maintained, right? Right. (laughs) And so, like, there's certain things that people just get, people get mad at developers because they feel they're evil and don't have good intentions. And then they get mad at the city for helping to try to direct 
redirect some of that. But actually under the city process, you have much more input that you can give to these processes than you could if a developer just bought something and built something tomorrow. Mm. We've asked the developers when they do come forward to us at the city council level, when they're asking to change uh, zoning for multifamily, et cetera, um, we do ask them, have you interacted with the neighbors? Have you had community meetings about this? They're actually not required to do that, but we ask them to do that. And many of them have done so, and then they adjust their plans and then come back to us. But so then in something like the Rite Aid project, you have the RDA and the developer, they kind of enter into some agreement where they agree on how much each, how much cost each one is going to incur and then how the profit sharing is going to work going forward. Yeah, and the, um, I have to say that profit sharing is not the norm, right? So right now with the um, proposed development for Wonderblock, mm-hmm. that is a potential profit sharing mm-hmm. investment. And the BDO is something like that because we get lease revenue from that. Right. But I in see. most of the others, we're helping to incentivize the developer to build something and uh-huh. then we're out. And so there's several ways that our economic development department can enter those agreements. And that's something that a lot of us have talked a lot about. Um, one is through an RFP process, which I think is probably the fairest and most equitable way. Anybody can bid if they want to. There's a process that all developers know how to get involved with. <clears throat> there's also a process where a developer can just come forward to the department and say they want to do something there and give a proposal um so they'd be working directly with the, the community economic development department but that can still involve the city giving funds yeah because it's part of that area so we own the land and we have a plan for the area so if it fits within the within those parameters then well anybody could bring anything forward but if it doesn't fit in the parameters then they're going to say no so that's kind of the community economic development department has a lot of power in that situation they also have a lot of power in the situation that we're in now with one block where they have done a direct it's like a you know a contract basically with this developer that we're only going to talk to you right now about this project and we're going to try to work out all the details and so they d- determined that without doing the RFP and so a lot of people are concerned about that that yeah. there could be other developers that would have had good proposals too and that's just like the people who do it on the administrative side already have a relationship with the contractors because of you know the right aid or whatever and so that's that's how that kind of works out i think so and i mean it probably happens in many different ways um i know that like intermountain healthcare for example and zions bank we approached the city at one time to talk a little bit about land use and what the city was thinking what could we do to help support because we have some impact investing funds we have partnerships you know that we could help to provide more affordable housing and, you know, meet the needs of some of the community members. So it could be any other kind of entity, too. Um, it just depends on whether it fits into the plans that they kind of already set out for that mm. area. So the Rite Aid project seems like it's been delayed, like it should have been happening. For, there have been delays in that. Is that right? Yeah, actually, I had requested an update on that. You know, it was brought up that the developer for the Wonderblock project also is subcontracted to build the LIHTC project at the Rite Aid. And that LIHTC project is an apartment complex that would have a required amount of low-income housing in Mm -hmm. it, which is awesome. In the whole project area, there's like townhomes, other apartments, some retail, a grocery store, etc. A lot of times what will happen is, for various reasons, a developer will kind of go through with saying they're going to do something there. And then, you know, things happen and it just doesn't work out. and then they 
move on and then maybe another developer will come around. So there's been several proposals for that area. I just haven't heard an update lately to Mm. where it is, but yeah, I've requested to have an update. So hopefully this week we'll hear more about it because I think people are especially interested. Well, number one, because we're proposing this other giant project and it's just a huge amount of cost and people are like, hey, we have all this property and what's happening? You know, what's going on? Um, And then also just because the developers connected to it too, like, is there some problem with them? What's happening? But it could be, you know, just to be a person that just always doesn't think the worst. Um, I'm like, well, it could be supply chain. It could be funding. It could be who knows what with this um, current client of inflation and all that stuff. Sometimes things just get stalled out and then take more time, especially when they're such huge projects. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the reasons why I think that the administrative side is kind of frustrated with us slowing down the process on the wonder block. For example, in the last work session, they talked about they've been working on this for like six years. And so then when people say, oh, you're going too fast and you haven't thought it all out, <laughs> they're like, well, we've been working. <laughs> like this is a, it's so, there's so many details and so many things that go into these giant projects that we're delaying you know, a huge amount of people's work by asking all these questions. But I don't mind delaying it in order to, I mean, my goal is to be as transparent as possible about all of these things and help people understand it all and then in the end when I vote I can explain to them why I voted that way but they'll have more of an understanding of it yeah and we are sort of doubling down on this developer and in fact this this new model they're they're talking about like forming an LLC or they already have formed an LLC isn't that somewhat unprecedented as it is yeah it is a different agreement than we've had in the past but honestly I think it's um the best case scenario for this type of development I mean in the past it would have been us just just giving incentive to them and then we'd be out. But now there's a possibility that we might actually benefit by getting some of those funds back if all the modeling goes the way we think it will. Yeah. So that's a very different scenario. And we're actually, I mean, if you think about the BDO, we are benefiting millions and millions of dollars a year off of that agreement and how that worked out. So if this could also be something like that where we get something back in the end, it would be a big win for Ogden City. It's risky, but it's a big win too. But is it also maybe in a way to sort of resolve some things that maybe the city wishes they had more control over with the Rite Aid thing? Yeah, I don't know if it has to do with that. I think it just was such a huge amount of money to go in with a partner on that it was just a way that seemed like it would be the most beneficial for the city overall. And, you know, I think that Brandon Cooper, the you know director of economic development, he has said plainly in several meetings, he feels like it's worth the investment even if we don't get any money back because of what it will do to catalyze development in the area and in the whole city afterwards too. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's important too is that it's kind of challenging, um, back to your question around like what is your role as a city council member, um, that I think is really important is that sometimes you get on council and some of these decisions have already been made. So it's very hard to completely disagree with everything because you're like, well, other councils in the past made these decisions. So that also makes it very vital that when you go into this, you understand that you're leaving somebody else with this to, to deal with later, mm, yeah. which is what we've had to do with pay raises for the employees or other things that other administrations and councils have not been willing to deal with 
And so other people have to pick up the slack, right? right? And you're like, okay, well, if they would have been giving people regular increases all this time, we wouldn't have to do a 15% increase this week, you know? But it's absolutely imperative that we do this because there's people that are working for us that cannot survive on this income. (laughs) You know, like, I mean, this is not right. So I think that's important. So people that made the decision about the BDO agreement in the beginning, that turned out to be a great deal, right? Whereas the junction has had many, many issues. And so people want to ensure that similar kinds of issues don't happen with this development, which, you know, one of them was a master lease agreement. So there's no incentive at all for the company that's running that to rent out those, um, you know, those areas. So then we have to pay for it if they don't. Mm -hmm. But in this other one, we're like, no, we're not doing that. (laughs) We're going to do this other model where it's all on you. Yeah. And so what is the status of Wonder Block right now? There was, you guys just had a work session about it and there's some decisions about to be made. Is that right? Yeah, on Tuesday, the bond um, will be on the agenda because when you're doing something like that, you have a certain requirement of time of how long it needs to be out in the public notice. Mm. I can't remember if this one is a month or two months. You know, it just depends on what kind of bond it is. That's why we have the council staff to figure that and to let us know what that is, the legal um, things we do. Yeah. Um, so we've decided to go ahead and leave it on the public agenda because then we can have the public hearing about it and have people come forward officially and mm-hmm. state. And we've had a lot of emails and a lot of conversation in the meanwhile. Mm-hmm. Um, but then um, we have the option to table it so we don't make the decision. Because that's one of the challenges, too, that happens is that sometimes we have these kind of public hearings and then people come up and, you know, 20 people will come up and give their opinion. Yeah. And then we just vote. And so people are like, well, why did I give my opinion if you already decided, right? right? So instead, people can come up and give their opinion, and then we can wait until next week to decide. Because then you can take in that consideration. Obviously, we've had these work sessions, and we've had tons of public engagement about it. Mm. So that might be a little bit different because people might just be saying the same thing when they come up. And if people have already decided... That's not going to sway their opinion one way or the other. But a lot of council members, myself included... I'm generally supportive. I have some concerns about several things, you know, and so you're like, how can I alleviate these concerns to say yes, or how can I defend myself if I don't want to support it at this time? But so when you say that you're voting on the bond, um, you're voting on setting aside the money to to do the project? We're voting actually, um, not even on that, we're voting to set the parameters for how our bonding agents will go out to get a bond for the project. And then what happens from that, and I thought they did a great job explaining this in the work session, was you know we could delay that decision, but that decision is actually has all these other things attached to it, which include like the developer accessing their funding that they need to move forward, getting maybe you know the partnership agreement with the courts about their parking is hinging on that because they're not going to sign it until we do the bond until you know like it's like a chicken and the egg kind of issue. Oh. So there's a whole bunch of things that are getting delayed based on the council showing this support because we could go out for a bond and we could still vote against the bond once we once it comes up right but this is kind of like the first step for them to go out shopping for the bond and having a certain range that they can go for does that make sense so yeah. like it's one small decision and it's not even the, our final decision but it indicates to people how this council is going to support the project because we have to think about in one year there's potentially three council members that could change and the mayor. And so if that's, you know, if that next... That could change all kinds of stuff. Yeah, and it could be a huge issue for the elections coming up, Uh whether you supported it or not. Yeah. Okay, so let's talk about the Union Station. 
We are not tearing it down. <laughs> right. Just to be clear. <laughs> I've been asking people about this because I think, you know, people are only kind of starting to hear about the city buying it and stuff. Well, so first, just take me into that a little bit. How did it come about that the city decided to buy the Union Station? I mean, there's a whole history that you could read um, in many places about how the Union Station has gone back and forth in hands of mm-hmm. different folks. So I think, I believe the city has always owned the building, but the land where it sits, Union Pacific, is is the owner and has been since whenever, you know. And so number one, um, the decision to purchase the land is kind of coming up to a head because in two years, our 50-year lease with Union Pacific will end. I think it's two years. And there is a certain cost we were supposed to be paying every year, but as far as we know, we have never paid anything for that land, although we own the building and we've done the maintenance and all that kind of thing. Um, So the decision is, well, do you let Union Pacific, the lease is going to run out. They're not offering a new one. So, you know, they could sell the land to somebody else and then really we own the building but if we don't own the land then we don't own the building right I mean because yeah yeah, that's a problem I think you know the administration just proposed that we try to purchase the land and they've actually been working for several years Uh to get an agreement with Union Pacific Uh to purchase it because they're just a very large organization for a while they couldn't even figure out who to talk to um so that happened over time and then I think it was pre-pandemic when the um, Union Pacific did agree on a certain amount and then pandemic so we just didn't do much we just tried to be very conservative about anything and had time Mm -hmm. um and then now have they brought forward this uh plan to buy it for the five point five million i think it is which is pretty affordable if you ask me we've never paid anything for it and it is the like the most important (laughs) building you know um on 25th street so it you know it's no question to me that we have to buy it so that does include the land or no it's the land yeah the the land land is what we're purchasing yeah because because i saw in the long-term plan that where we've got the bridge going over you want to open that up a little bit and maybe not rely on a bridge and maybe open up access to that Mm -hmm. western part which i think is really important like there's really bottleneck yeah and this deal doesn't have anything to do with that other land we'll have to talk to union pacific more about the rail yards right yeah the rail and uta so there's different owners of that land Mm. and so in the long-term plan yeah that i mean that's really the only area we have to grow as a city um because then you run into west haven you know pretty soon you run into the other cities um and i think it is a wonderful idea to you know open that up and have more um, buildings back there but there would be a lot of negotiation that would have to happen right um to because obviously union pacific will still need and others will need access through those rail yards but they can be condensed a little bit i think that's Mm. the overall idea and so when it comes to the building is there any kind of proposal for what to do with the building yet um, well, I think that there's a couple different ideas, like conceptual ideas, and uh-huh. they were included in um, an RFP that UTA and the city put out for the whole campus, mm-hmm. um, because UTA owns a, quite a bit of the land by the front runner and all that. Mm-hmm. Um, so part of that ideation is to move the front runner station back to the Union Station, right? Um, and then so that the it's indoors, right? Yeah, and the BRT would still be where the Greyhound, right? The bus rapid transit would still be over there so you have that connection um and then i think you know there's a whole museum building that's proposed in several of those design concepts Mm -hmm. and that's based on a study that was done i can't remember the organization that did it but basically said if you're going to have this type of collection with the things that you have you need 130 130 sorry square feet and most of that is back of house right it's like where the offices are and where you keep the inventory of the artifacts and you take care of them in a certain kind of way Mm -hmm. and then you have exist 
exhibition space out front that you do, um, we certainly would still have some historical things in the Union Station, but there's a whole plan in one of the design concepts where there would be a walkway with all the trains and then you'd have the museum, which would be a proper museum for all the different things that we have. Because our museum right now, I mean, the building itself needs a lot of care. Mm -hmm. It's old. Um, it hasn't had the ongoing maintenance throughout the years. We had a mayoral administration that tried to get rid of the Union Station at one point, and so that's why people are scared, mm. <laughs> you know, that we might be doing that, but that's absolutely not what we're doing. Right. Um, or what I think the, ma the current mayor is doing. And But that's our problem, and that's the same thing with the Marshall White, etc. that I've said to people over and over, is we have had people that have been elected in our city before that do not believe this is something the city should be doing. Recreation facilities, Union Station, et cetera. Oh, they huh. think it should all be in private hands. Mm -hmm. So if you can, you need to continue electing people that have these same perspectives on things because there's only so much current elected officials can do you know, to make things happen because it will be over long periods of time doing any of these projects. Yeah, interesting, because I did hear, you know, there's a lot of concern about losing the stuff down at the Union Station, but it, to me it seemed like the plans that were out there included plenty of museum space and all of that, and so that's why I was just curious if there was something I hadn't really seen. Um, talking with people and being very transparent about what's going on is just a high priority for me. But I think that's been one of the challenges, as, as I kind of see it as an outsider, is that this stuff hasn't been communicated in a proactive way. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, we have all these studies. We have the Union Station Foundation board members who are on board with many of the things we're talking about. But the way things were handled were not transparent, and there was kind of a lack of communication about why things were happening the way they were. When you have so many people volunteering their time over years to be involved in something and dedicated so many hours and money, a lot of money too, to, mm -hmm. you know, helping with the foundation and um, all those things, then if it's not handled correctly, people could get all these ideas because they've had experience in the past that validates that for them and if you're not transparent they're going to think the worst case scenario why wouldn't they you know right and I guess it can be hard to realize that these decisions may not be final or you know that we're just in a proposal phase like it may yeah it may seem more final than it is yeah and when you kind of take over the museum and realize I mean that on the staff side, they're saying, well, there was 76 keys out in the community to this building. We're like, so we had to change the lock and not give everybody the same access they had before. If that's not communicated in a way that people makes people understand why you're doing that, you know, it can be a problem because people think, oh, I was just, I've done hundreds of hours of work on this and I've been locked out, but you're not having people understand why that's happening. And I think that's a challenge. So it's true. Yeah. It's like, well, that is factual that that happened. These are the reasons they're saying why it happened, but... It almost doesn't matter at a certain point your reasons for doing it if you haven't really explained it to the people that have invested so much time and energy. And so do I understand right that you have proposed or are going to propose some kind of resolution regarding that development and, and how it should go forward? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think I'm the first person that proposed that idea, but I think it would be helpful. It was very helpful with the Marshall White issue to really lay out what we all believe to be true, because um, I think that's also the challenge is we're seven different council members, so we have different things we might say about it. You know, that's confusing to people. If I'm saying 
well, this is how I see it, and then somebody else is saying this is how they see it, or the mayor is saying a different way how he's seeing it. Mm-hmm. If we lay it in writing and say these are the facts as we know it now, and this is our intention of how we're going to go about it, I think that could be helpful with being transparent and open to people and also clarify for us what we agree on. I mean, that's what happens sometimes in those kinds of things. Even with the Marshall White agreement that we created, we had to go back and forth on several of the different items in there. For example, um, one idea is to create an advisory committee for the Union Station, which I think is a great idea because Mm -hmm. you would not only include Union Station Foundation folks and staff, you could also include some of the constituent voices that we want to have present so that they feel valid and understood, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm just making it up. You might have one of those Legion representatives. You might have, um, you know, a couple of these advocates that have been on the, the Facebook group or, you know, mm-hmm. you want to have a group that can question, you know, can put out questions, but then also can come together with all the information. Because I think that's really what happened in the Marshall White situation, too, was like there just wasn't information available. So people just, you know, assume whatever they hear is true. And Mm -hmm. that's kind of the same thing that's happened with the Union Station. Yeah, yeah. I think just generally, I'm of the mind that we can do some improvement of this stuff. I don't I don't like keeping everything totally historic. I think there are elements of Union Station you need to keep, maybe the sign, maybe some of the facade, you know. Mm-hmm. But I, I'm also excited to have some of those museums upgraded, even if they're the same exhibitions, but in a nicer space that I... Oh, yeah. I mean, it's not archival at this point. I mean, there's so many issues with having it the way that they are now. Um, Number one, just storage. Like, how are we storing these artifacts and are they being maintained or cared for the way they need to be? I mean, the one that keeps coming up is the Mercy car, which is sitting outside where it belongs. It's a train car, you know, but then what is the proper approach to how you go about maintaining that? Having volunteers show up and just paint it with whatever material they want in any way they want to is not appropriate, even though they feel like they're doing something nice. The intention is there. But, you know, we have a whole report that shows exactly what needs to be done to restore it properly. But, again, that hasn't been shared with people, you know, and the cost, et cetera, that go into that. Um, So that's a challenge. Or you train, maybe you have museum professionals and you train volunteers to do certain aspects of things, but not necessarily the things that take expertise, you know. Because I agree. I've I've taken um, the front runner several times in this winter already. And I just, to me, it's like un- Unbelievable that we have this wonderful train system and we have not set it up for people to ride it yeah. because you're outside in the elements I'm oh, trying to yeah. wear business clothes soaking wet raining you know you have a little bit of cover but you're like if we really want people to be utilizing this transportation mm-hmm. let's make it a little bit more humane you know like a big city you're going to have some kind of structure that you would be in to <laughs> interface so wouldn't that be cool be waiting in the Union Station instead which was meant for that mm-hmm. and maybe have like a little coffee shop a couple little shops or something and then you have event space like I spent a week in Chicago in a building called the Old Post Office Building. It takes up literally a whole city block in Chicago. Mm-hmm. It's been renovated inside. It's amazing because you do have the artifacts of the the structure, but then you have use, uses that we want to use it for today, uh-huh. right? Rather than just an empty building that is kind of just sitting there. Uh-huh. I mean, there's just so many things that uh-huh. could be much better, right? And we're doing the best with what we got, but we got to do it better. Right, and there's elements that you can keep and it will be awesome. But then there's elements you can upgrade so that yeah. it's still all nice. And it could have the historic elements, like you're saying. So then you would guide people into the more appropriate museum space mm-hmm. for all these artifacts. Mm-hmm. I mean, it certainly will cost. It'll be an investment. But I think if you have the plan laid out, then you can get investment and find sources for funding to build that kind of place. All 
All right. I don't want to keep you too long. I have one more thing. I mean, I we could talk all day. About. I mean, I could talk about this stuff all day. <laughs> I, could, I could ask more. <laughs> but I, I wanted to know, I've been talking to a lot of artists lately uh, for the podcast and your husband's an artist and an art teacher, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm just curious, do you guys talk much about how to, uh, you know, make the art scene around here more vital and or, or how to hmm. um, include local artists, you know, in, in the things that are going on? Do you guys ever have those kind of conversations? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think we do on several levels. You know, Matt was really involved in the Dumpke Art Plaza building. And I um, recused myself from all the votes for that because he was involved in that project because the city did part of the funding, etc. But Is that I the one that's right there by the Monarch? By the Monarch. And so that's like that's one, cool. It's kind of the heart of the Nine Rails Creative District. We also happen to live in the same district, you mm-hmm. know, but... I think that's part of it is finding ways to have, you know, international world renowned artists have their art there, but then also have the experience of having local art exhibits and interactions in the same space Mm -hmm. so that you have that connection so that everybody, I mean, what's wonderful about public art and spaces like that is that everybody has access. Like it's not this austere, you know, gallery space, which I love the new Ogden Contemporary Art. And I think Mm -hmm. it's very accessible to people. But you Mm -hmm. can imagine there's some people that don't really feel like it's a place for them to go. They can see it from the street, but they may not feel comfortable going in. Yeah, I might feel like I should wear a tie or something. Yeah, like I don't know if I'm allowed in those spaces. (laughs) So I think that's important. But those public art places, everyone can go there and just sit or... Mm -hmm. You know, they might be skateboarding even they're not supposed to. But anyway, that's a whole other topic. Um, but yeah, to make things um, available to people. Because Weber State has a wonderful gallery and a wonderful program, but they are also up on the hill and, and hard to access. Uh-huh. So I hopefully, too, the new um, bus rapid transit will be a wonderful connector between the university and um, downtown, too. So, yeah. yeah, we talk a lot about that because, you know, Matt not only teaches students at Weber State, but he oftentimes has to mentor or... Um, help support the local art teachers. They have to go back for recredentialing and different things like that. So he has a lot of interface with them too. And that's building a pipeline. You know, people might say, oh, well, art is not a valid job. You know, <laughs> like a lot of people, they're like, you need to have a real income and then you can also do that on the side. But there, there are ways that you can do it as a living, you know. Yeah. And I think he's evidence of that too. Yeah. Well, and I have noticed a lot of a lot more investing in the arts in the city. And do you have a sense of where that's coming from? Is that well, the city itself is actually investing a lot more. For example, um, the council and administration supporting this art plaza. Number mm-hmm. one, also in we have a public art fund as well as public art grants that go out. And so that has been a big emphasis on this administration and then the council. I would love to put more funding into that too, because mm-hmm. um, there's never enough funding for that. For me, it's not an extra art is life right that that yeah. is why we're here is literature music mm-hmm. paintings you know performance those are the reasons why we do all the stuff we do well and i really think ogden is in a place where we are identifying ourselves we're creating an ogden yeah. identity and and so it needs to involve that kind of stuff absolutely yeah, yeah like last night we we're out on the art stroll right and there's exhibits you know all variety happening you know on a monthly basis that people can go visit and in places where people will feel welcome and hopefully they do feel welcome going into the monarch because it is a different kind of space and we want people to feel that they have that connection oh yeah i love it i love going through the studios there talking to the artists Mm -hmm. all that it's great all right well thank you very much i really appreciate it